0: Welcome to Upahamu Africa, a podcast on life and politics on the African continent. My name is Kim Dion and I'm your host. This week, our guest is Omolade Adumbi, a political anthropologist and associate professor at the University of Michigan in the Department of Afro-American and African Studies. We talk about his book, Oil Wealth and Insurgency in Nigeria, which was published by Indiana University Press in 2015. His book teaches us about the promises of oil wealth and the entanglements between multinational corporations, transnational institutions, rights NGOs, and local communities in the oil-rich Niger Delta region of Nigeria. Adunbi received his BA in philosophy from the University of Ado Akiti in Nigeria, and he earned an MA in African Studies and a PhD in Anthropology from Yale University. I met with him during the annual meeting of the African Studies Association in November of last year. Thank you for agreeing to be a guest on Ufahamu Africa Lade.
1: You're most welcome.
0: I'm really excited that we get to talk about your book. I had the pleasure of reading it just after it came out as part of our summer book series The Monkey Cage, and I learned a lot from reading it, particularly about the myths behind competing claims to oil well in Nigeria's Niger Delta. I wondered if you could read this excerpt from the book for our listeners. It's from Chapter 1, and it draws on your research that involved interviewing Chief Moses, an elder who had welcomed Shell British Petroleum in 1954.
1: Oh, Thank you very much. I'll be happy to read that. Chief Moses described the old community's relation on hearing that a geophysical survey indicated oil deposits in the area. chiefs children and women danced around the town celebrating the discovery the discovery of oil chief moses and others say reinforced the promise of their ancestors that their land and life will blossom in wealth members of the community were not surprised when share representatives said that oil will bring enormous wealth not just to the company but also to them and to the nigerian government This oil wealth, Shell representatives told the people, could transform their lives, making them the envy of the world. It was on this basis, Chief Moses told me, that the community had had cooperated with Shell. The Onyibos had returned a few days later with heavy equipment and started drilling for oil. After drilling for several days without success, Oil company representatives met with the elders again and asked that the oracle be consulted. The oracle told them to make sacrifices, including a white goat and a white sheep, that would soften the soil and make oil flow in the area. The chief told me how they consulted the goddesses of accident and of prosperity. Three days after the sacrifice, oil started to flow and it has not stopped since. This story is echoed throughout the Niger Delta when the history of oil discovery in the area is told, whether by young adults, school children, or chiefs. Many Niger Delta communities never forget the sacrifices, nor do they forget the unfulfilled corporate promises of wealth.
0: Thank you. Now, in doing your research, did you find many of these stories of cooperation, and the reason why I ask is because so much of what's reported in the international media focuses on conflict, and even the title of your book includes the word insurgency.
1: Yeah, thank you very much for that question. Yes, um, when I was doing this research, I was interested in learning more about the conflict that oil brought to many of the communities of the Delta. Right. But in interviewing many of uh, the elders and community members in the area, They made it clear to me that, uh, well, when the oil company representatives came in the uh, 40s, 50s, they welcomed them with open hands Mm. because they were promised that oil was going to transform their communities. Mm. And bear in mind that uh, transforming communities to many of these elders meant two things. The first is that this was the era of commodity boom. Right. In, in the world where the western region of Nigeria made a lot of money mm-hmm. from cocoa production. Mm-hmm. And with this cocoa production in the western region of the country, the region was able to provide free and qualitative education mm-hmm. to the people of the, re- of the region. Mm-hmm. And they were able to build a lot of infrastructure mm-hmm. in that region. For example, the first television station in Africa was built using proceeds from cocoa. Then, a lot of infrastructure uh, facilities were constructed. Roads, Mm -hmm. good roads in Mm -hmm. the region, electricity, and uh, uh, water, Mm -hmm. and other things were used, or were constructed using Proceeds from cocoa. So, to a lot of Niger Delta communities, when they look at what cocoa was doing for the Western region, they assume that, okay, if cocoa could do this, cocoa being an international commodity could do this for the Western region, therefore, oil being another international commodity should also be able to do that for their region. So, it was on this basis that they said, okay, they welcomed. a lot of these oil corporations to the region, right? So that is one. Then the second part is that haven't been promised by their ancestors that the region was going to be rich, yeah. So, discovery of oil became a way of fulfilling that promise, yes. Okay, now that we have oil, this is in fulfillment of our ancestral promise that we're going to be rich, so. Cooperating with uh, 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 the oil company representatives was considered to be a way of fulfilling this ancestral promise. So
0: this is one of the one of the reasons why I really enjoyed your book was because I had. I had not known about this ancestral promise. And there's so many beautiful stories that you narrate in your book, um, drawing from your research, that demonstrates, you know, um, the multiple ancestral promises, a- ancestral promise myths that have been um, kind of taken in as, as, um, as dogma, right, mm-hmm. in, yep. in the Niger Delta. Yep. So can you share more with our listeners about your professional background before you became an academic, and how that led you to eventually writing this book?
1: Thank you very much. Um, before be- becoming an academic, I was uh, a human rights and political activist in Nigeria. I still consider myself one. Right. And I'm uh, 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 As a human rights and political activist, I was part of uh, the group that uh, uh, fought against uh, uh, military dictatorship in Nigeria, and uh, sometimes ended up being uh, detained by the military for several weeks and sometimes months, and uh, at some point, particularly after uh, uh, the uh, transition from military rule to civilian rule in 1999, I started rethinking my participation in the old human rights uh, movement. Mm-hmm. And uh, not that I wanted to say, I wanted to abandon human rights in totality, but I was, uh, 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 when I joined the movement, my hope was that I was gonna be part of those who bring change mm-hmm. to the country. Mm-hmm. And at some point, I just stopped thought that uh, uh, participation in the human rights movement wasn't achieving that goal of bringing about change, right. particularly after the transition to democracy, when a lot of those that were part of uh, the military or mm-hmm. those civilians who collaborated with the military ended up being in power. And I saw that as... Uh, uh,
0: inconsistent with the ideals that democracy would bring change.
1: Absolutely. That this is uh, inconsistent with uh, what we have fought for for, for several years in right. the country. And that, but it was at that point that I started thinking about what else I could do to bring about change. And right. I said, okay, maybe there is another way. Why don't I go to grad school?
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good place to ask questions, graduate school. Yeah. <laughs> so what main takeaways do you hope readers will have after reading your book?
1: Two things. The first is that uh, I wanted to write something that is uh, uh, academic, but at the same time accessible to those who are not... In the academy, that is one. But the second part is that a lot of literature on the Niger Delta before my before I wrote my book tend to focus on the conflict and why the government is doing uh, what they are doing to the communities, or why corporations are doing what they are doing to the comu- to the communities. So, though, you know, I appreciate many of this work on the Delta, but at the same time, I felt that. Um, these materials didn't tell the story of the communities. Yeah. Not that you know, they didn't tell the story of the communities in a way that will project the voice of a lot of these community members. That what do these communities actually think about oil? What do they think about the corporations? Right. So for me, rather than co- focus on the conflict, Oh, heartedly. I wanted to change that debate, I wanted to change the discourse around uh, oil production in Nigeria, and I wanted to give voice to a lot of these community members whose voice had been lost in the old debate about oil production in Nigeria. So that was the motivation for the book, and I'm glad that uh, I was able to achieve that Definitely. in writing that story.
0: Now, I want to ask you a question that was originally articulated by Vassar College political scientist Zachariah Mompili, a friend of both of ours. We're asking our guests to answer a question that Zach raised in episode 24. And this is part of a a conference that Zach and I coordinated on decolonizing African studies. So he asked six questions, but I'll just ask you one. Who is the audience, real or imagined, for our intellectual work?
1: very good question. And this is something I've had to debate uh-huh. uh, uh, several times in my mind for uh, uh, several years, particularly when I became an academic. And who is going to be my audience? And uh, I also realized that a lot of academic books are not accessible to those who are not in the academy. Right. And that, uh, uh, that was also part of my story when I was not in the academy, when I read academic books. I tend to just leave the introduction and go to the other part of the of the book. Yeah. And the reason is that I saw that a lot of this intro a lot of the introduction in many books are not accessible to those who are not Within that discipline, whether it is anthropology or sociology or political science, right? So, and uh, I felt that look, if we are going to change that, then we have to, we as scholars have to be able to write in an accessible way, yeah. in a way that will make people who are not part of the academy appreciate what we are doing. And I think that is uh, what I think is important for us as an intellectual. So in uh, defining who our audience is, we should also realize that we're not just writing for the academy, Mm -hmm. we are writing for people to appreciate what we are doing. Particularly for those of us who have an activist background, we have to be able to communicate with those who are outside of the academy who will appreciate what we are doing and who can be part of uh, the change process. So
0: I agree with you. And one of the things I really admired about your book was that while it was pushing the boundaries of um, ideas and arguments that we have in academia about some of these questions about power and resistance, Mm -hmm. um, it was also beautifully narrated, right, that we, because, um, it was really interesting, it was because you were able to make your argument through the narratives of, um, uh, that you draw from your research, and I wonder if I could just ask you what your writing habit is like, how do you write, um, you know, are you one of those people who tries to write every day? Are you one of those binge writers? Or, you know, do you have a community of people that you share your work with? Like, how, how exactly? Because um, it is really a great piece of writing. And more than just, you know, a, a solid academic book that is won um, won a lot of acclaim among scholars, it, it's also a beauty to read. And I just wanted to know if you could share with our listeners a little bit more about your writing habit.
1: Um, I Well, I... I do not consider myself as one of those who will have uh, a specific writing habit that uh, yeah. maybe you go to a writing uh, a workshop or go to uh, or be part of a writing group uh-huh. before you can accomplish uh, what you want to accomplish. But uh, my writing habit is such that uh, uh, I devote one or two days of every week to writing, and yeah. when I want to write, I Say that, okay, today I am going to write, no distraction. So if it is just for one or two hours, then that is exactly what I'm going to do. And uh, I'm also someone that likes to write where I can see people. Um, And I think uh, that might be maybe one of... um, (laughs) Uh, The ways in which I I, I find inspiration. Mm -hmm. I'm inspired by seeing people around. So when I want to write, I could sit in a coffee shop, write for a few minutes, then look around, look at the beautiful people, the beautiful scene, the beautiful environment, then continue with my writing. So I don't write in I can't write in isolation. I can't Mm -hmm. write in a secluded place. So I like to see people around me. Yeah. When I'm writing, when I when I'm doing my writing, uh, a lot of my colleagues and my friends will say that, oh, that could be distracting. Mm. But I find that as an inspiration. So I'm inspired by seeing people and seeing beautiful environment.
0: I think as writers, we all have different tastes and we have to acknowledge what our tastes are. So, yeah. thanks for sharing that. I hope that will help yeah. other other writers out there who are trying to figure out, you know, what's their own what's their own taste for what makes them, you know, more productive or successful in their writing. Mm-hmm. So, I wanted to ask you one more question before we go. Okay. We normally ask our guests about books they're reading mm-hmm. right now or have read recently. Do you have any book recommendations for our listeners?
1: Uh, there is one that uh, I'm reading right now, and it is called uh, Humor, Silence, and Civil Society in Nigeria, published by the uh, University of Rochester Press and written by uh, Ebenezer Obadari, who, who is at uh, by the University Human of Kansas. Cases, yeah. yes. So it's a, it's, a gr- it's a great book because uh, 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 the book talks about how Nigerians use humor. To describe the ways in which they live in an oppressive system even though we have a civilian administration in Nigeria but uh, uh, but it's still considered by many Nigerians as as oppressive because Mm. rights are still being violated and particularly civil and political rights. So it takes that Argument further by looking specifically at uh, uh, some of the jokes that Nigerians crack about uh, uh, the uh, uh, former uh, uh, President uh, Goodluck Jonathan. Ah. So particularly during the uh, uh, the oil subsidy crisis. So I find that very, very, very interesting. And the second book which uh, I just uh, finished recently is uh, Life in the Times of Oil, Poverty and Pipelines in uh, In Charge. Written by Laurie Leonard, who teaches at Cornell, and it's a, a, a it's a book that looks specifically at uh, how the World Bank was trying to help Chad manage its uh, oil proceeds, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, also how uh, a lot of Chadians who thought that oil belongs to them mm. but don't see. The uh, 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 the wealth, the benefits of uh, 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 oil wealth, right. which uh, the World Bank was managing for them, because they thought that uh, the uh, Chadian government wasn't uh, 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 capable in- enough of uh, managing this wealth. But what I find interesting <coughs> about the book, there is a particular chapter in the book that talks about uh, uh, waste management. What do we what do we consider as waste? So waste as wealth. So that waste what some corporations, or what oil corporations might consider as waste, for example, containers, containers and items that will basically recycle here, a yeah. lot of these community members will turn this waste into wealth. And yeah. say, oh, this thing, these things are still useful to us. They, they, make, they make good use of uh, some of uh, these materials. So that's uh, by, by the second book that I just uh, finished recently. Thank you. You're thank welcome. you for
0: those recommendations, and thank you for joining us this week on Mu Africa.
1: You're most welcome.
0: That's all for this week. Find us online and tell us what you're reading and learning about the continent. You can listen to Ufahamu Africa on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or on our website, ufahamuafrica.com. Find us on Twitter at Ufahamu Africa. Ufahamu Africa is a production of Smith College. Sponsored by the Government Department and the Committee on Faculty Compensation and Development. Kahlia Aruna, Class of 2021, is Ufahamu Africa's Research and Production Assistant. Technical assistance is provided by the Center for Media Production, and music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening. Until next week, safiri salama.